Coming up on Golf Today, Rory is handing out grades in Dubai on himself. How would he rate his season and what is the one tournament loss that keeps him up at night? It's been all happy days for UCLA's Lilia Vu as she wraps up her year in Naples. She'll join the show to talk about how she went from the struggle bus to the best in the world. And a World Golf Hall of Fame member says hello. Davis Love III from Framework Agreement to the future of the Ryder Cup to RSM host. Davis is busy in almost 60, but we're tracking him down on Golf Today. Golf Today. Golf today on a Tuesday, Damon Hack alongside Eamon Lynch, Golf Week Magazine, a couple of the season enders of this week on the DP World Tour and the LPGA Tour, a lot of cash being handed out this week, but maybe some tears as these uh, great uh, tours are coming to a close in 2023. Well, it's nice that we're seeing some resolution somewhere, even mm. if it's only inside the ropes in either Florida or Dubai, because everything else that is unknown and unresolved well, that seems as though it's going to be trucking on well into 2024 at this point. This is the world we live in now. We've got great stories inside the ropes. We've got speculation and uncertainty outside the ropes. And the point is that the guys who are actually competing inside the ropes are also involved mm. with the stuff that's going on outside the ropes, as we're going to find out when mm. we head over to Dubai, which is where the DP World Tour has turned touchdown this week for the final Rolex Series event. The old world is wrapping its season at Jamaira Golf Estates. And the race to Dubai has already been settled before balls are in the air, though. Rory McIlroy, the winner again. John Ram just can't quite catch him this week, which gives McIlroy his fifth race to Dubai title. Here's a look at those race to Dubai standings. See what we got here. Rory has now won the title for the second year in a row. The fifth time overall, by the way. Previous titles came in 2012, 2014, 2015, and 2022. And Rory met with the media today in Dubai and gave more insight into the state of the game. And he also graded his own year on a scale from 1 to 10. Yeah, I, I probably give it a 7 out of 10. Um, I've played good golf. I... Uh, you know, had the, the two, you know, the two wins and the big, you know, I, I had my best ever Ryder Cup, um, which I think is, it feels like a win to me, especially coming off the back of Whistling Straits. So, you know, I've, I've been happy with the year. Yeah, I, you know, if I look back on one thing, I'll rue the, the miss at LA. You know, I had a great opportunity there to, um, you know, to, to pick up another major and I didn't, but you know, I, I'm still not going to let that take away from the fact that it's been another really consistent, solid year um, with some really good performances. And, you know, my game, feeling like my game's in as good a shape as it's ever been, you know, through, throughout my, you know, whatever it is, 16, 17-year career. So um, I'm happy with that and, um, you know, try to finish this year off on a high and play well this week. And, reset and get ready for 2024. One other question just about where we're at with the game at the moment, the investment that is coming in and we're hearing reports from all sorts of different directions. How would you kind of sum up where we are at the moment? I know there have been meetings going on and, and so forth. So I, th I think the professional game has never been stronger or healthier from a financial standpoint. Um, you know, there's never been a better time to be a professional golfer. Um, but that's 5% of what golf is. Golf is the golf that you play. It's the golf that my dad plays. It's, you know, it's, it's not just about us. It's about the overall health of the game. And, um, you know, we're all talking about this investment coming into the, you know, to the top level of golf. But I think that investment also needs to go into the RNA and the USGA and for them to try to increase participation and, and so yes, all this stuff's going on but you know I hope some of that money that, that is going to be invested is invested back into the game of golf in terms of grassroots programs and, um, and again trying to, trying to drive, drive the game forward uh, for the next generation. And, and do you expect clarity because at the moment the, the waters are seriously muddied aren't they? 
I wouldn't think so. I think if you were in the middle of it, you would see that there's a, there's a path forward. Um, it's just that no one on the outside has any details, right? You know, list lips, sink ships. So, you know, we're trying to keep it tight within the walls. And, um, you know, I'm sure when there's, there's news to tell, it will, it will be told. Rory, um, you've spoken a few times this year about the kind of personal toll of kind of political involvement and the energy that that's required. How important is it for you that the kind of the wider political situation around the framework agreement gets wrapped up and doesn't drag deep into 2024? Because I think most of the chat suggests that this December 31st deadline is looking ambitious at this point. Yeah, I would, I would say that's right. Um, I think getting something done sooner rather than later, I think, is a, is a good thing, um, because not you know, even if we get a deal done, it doesn't mean that it's actually going to happen. That that's up to the United States government at that point, and whether the Department of Justice think that it's the right thing to do, or whether it's anti-competitive or, or whatever. So um, even if a deal does get done, it's not. A sure thing. So, uh, yeah, we're just going to have to wait and see. But in my opinion, the, the faster something gets uh, gets done, the better. Presumably, that's beneficial for you because I, I I don't know. I mean, are you enjoying having a seat at that particular table? Not or? particularly. No, no, not what I signed up for whenever I I went on the board. But uh, yeah, it's. You know, it's the, the, the game of professional golf has been in flux for the last two years. Again, the overall game, I think, is in a really good shape. And, um, but everyone focuses on this, this top level because it, you know, because it is what it is. And it's, a, it's an entertainment product and it's a show. But uh, the faster that it gets rectified, I, I think the, the better for, for everyone. Kind of a quiet press conference, kind of subdued funereal. I would say, let Rory McIlroy cook. Enough with the politics. The man grew up with Tiger Woods's marks and records on his mind, and he's now bereft of a major championship for 10 years. And I'm watching this 34-year-old, and this is the toll of the last year and a half. He won a couple times in the DP World Tour, been in the mix in major championships, but let Rory McIlroy cook. Enough is enough. He wants to get out of the po politics, get out of the political game, and be that that genius, that kid who was, you know, chipping balls into the, uh, the washing machine back in the day in Hollywood, Northern Ireland. Yeah, nonsense. He, he said last year that it w stuff like this actually drove him. No longer. And inspired him <laughs> a little bit more. And, and we saw that particularly last summer from Rory, particularly in Canada, where he, it was fuel for Rory McIlroy, this kind of stuff. He was proving a point. Well, now it's not quite clear what point is there to be proven. It, it, the waters are muddied, to use the term from that questioner in the press conference. And this isn't really what he signed up for, but it is. Because even when Rory joined the board two years ago, all of this was looming. It, it was very clear that there was a, an existential threat to the PGA Tour, sure. to the DP World Tour. And now it's just kind of manifested itself over the last couple of years in a lot of division, a lot of criticism, a lot of discord. It's not going to end anytime soon. Rory's term on the board ends at the end of 2024. There will be some clarity by then, but his work isn't done, at least as far as boardroom stuff goes. And mm. it's, you know, it's a reflective period. He spent a lot of time until late last night, Dubai time, on a phone call for the PGA Tour's board meeting, which was happening on the East Coast yesterday. So maybe that's why he's a little bit tired and weary of talking about all of this. He's probably got a calendar on his wall, putting X's by each day that passes. I think he needs to focus more on inside the ropes. Now, he's done a great deal, I think, of good for the PGA Tour. He has been a good soldier, as it were, a proponent for traditional golf, as it were. But I feel like, you know, the toll of being so intelligent, so engrossed in this situation, having a searching curious mind is that I think it's it's too much for a golfer who let's be honest if you want to be truly great and transcendent and he has said maybe he's not Sir Nick Faldo you know maybe he's not Greg Norman just in terms of a singular selfish focus Tiger Woods inside the ropes height of power it was all about me it was uh, nothing could get in the way between him and greatness 
Rory McIlroy has not won a major since 2014. He's also happier than any of those people that you've actually mentioned mm. right there. But I, I thought the most refreshing thing in that interview was that's really about the only time in recent memory we've heard an elite player talk about the game as something other than themselves. Mm. That whatever money is coming into this game ought to be going to growth programs with governing bodies to expand the reach of this game, that the game just simply doesn't exist for some selfish individual to wring every dime out of it for themselves that they possibly can, regardless of who came before them and built it and regardless of who's coming after them. Because that is a driving mindset among a lot of guys on the elite level of the PGA Tour. So it's actually just refreshing to hear somebody say that the, I think he said 5% of this game is the elite professional PGA Tour level. And the idea that whatever benefits come ought to be spread in the game a little bit more than just into the pockets of a couple of dozen top players. I think that's a little bit refreshing, at least. It is. We love Rory for his sensibilities, for his unselfishness, but we also love him because of that 330-yard high draw that he hits with a driver and his ability to take us on a rocket ship ride with his game. And I, and I think we miss that about him. Great having him in the mix at the Los Angeles Country Club for the United States Open, the one defeat he said that keeps him up at night in 2023. Great seeing him close out that Genesis Scottish Open, 17th and 18th holes. But my, oh, my, the currency which, which he came into this game as a professional was major championships built in the image of Tiger Woods. And me, as a golf journalist and a golf fan, I miss that Rory McIlroy, and I think the game misses that Rory McIlroy. True, but majors are hard to win, and it's not as though he just appeared in one of them. I mean, he's been no worse than eighth in seven majors in the last two years. He's only once. The missed cut at the Masters mm. earlier this year was the only time he's finished worse than eighth in a major championship in the last two years. So it's not like he's lost running around out there in the clouds as a figure somewhere. He certainly has a lot of distractions, but he also has interests outside of just simply being a competitor. You know, we'd all like to see that next chapter start and see what that turns into. But I don't think it's that far away. Age 34 seems like a very good time to start. Obviously, the age where a lot of players, a la Justin Rose, similar vintage Adam Scott, Phil Mickelson, winning their first majors at about that time. Maybe Rory McIlroy can kind of write that new chapter and win major number five in 2024. Speaking of five, more than five months after the PGA Tour announced an alliance with the Saudi-backed Public Investment Fund, the tour hasn't agreed to terms on a deal. And on Monday, the PGA Tour's policy board met to discuss other investment options that have emerged in recent weeks. So for more, let's bring in Rex Hoggard from St. Simons. Rex, uh, what can you tell us? Damon, I think Eamon just nailed it. When you talked about Rory McIlroy in that press conference, he sounds subdued. He sounds like a man who actually sat through one too many meetings. And yesterday's meeting, by all accounts, from what I've been told, was a marathon session. And according to a memo that was sent to the players this morning by Commissioner Jay Monahan, the bulk of that meeting was spent really looking into two different areas. One of them, quote unquote, was outside investment. We all know what that is. That's the tour's ongoing negotiations with the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia. According to that memo, they are ongoing, they're progressing, but it would, quote unquote, deliver it, which means that there doesn't seem to be any ending in sight. It also kind of enlightens what we've talked about in recent weeks, that along with that uh, offer from the PIF, there's been, quote unquote, unsolicited offers from many different private equity firms. We know now that uh, Fenway Sports Group was one of those that have submitted. According to the memo, there have been dozens of those offers from various private equity. They have vetted. They've sort of whittled that down. They now go to the next step. But it doesn't seem like they're very close either right now to a deal with either the PIF or some other private equity. The other part of that memo addressed what they called was player progress. And this really goes to the heart of what the tour is trying to create with this new for-profit entity. And we've talked about this before, that whatever PGA Tour Enterprises, which is what they call it, is going to become, there will be an option. There will be a road for players to earn some sort of equity in that for-profit entity. This is very important. Go back just a couple weeks ago. Both of you remember that Endeavor, there was news that they had dropped out of the bidding to get in bed with the PGA Tour. And the reason is, I was told by people close to the negotiation, is because their bid did not include an option for players to earn equity in whatever this new for-profit entity is going to be. So we're starting to get a little bit better idea of what exactly this is going to look like. 
Rex, there's one word in the memo that Jay Monaghan sent to players this morning that carries a, a lot of weight as far as timeline goes. It's the word deliberate. Doesn't suggest that we're going to see a lot of action by December 31st, which was the original deadline set in that framework agreement, right? I don't think so. I, I've spoken with a lot of people inside the PGA Tour. You have too. And I think from the very beginning, that December 31st deadline has been talked about as sort of a soft deadline. From what I've been told, they needed to create some sort of benchmark to have everyone moving in the right direction and make sure that everyone was staying on point, on topic. But they can certainly kick the can if they feel like they're making progress. And according to this memo, according to what they told the, the player directors and the independent directors at the last policy board meeting, they're certainly moving in that direction. What do we know about the new independent director that was added to the board today who replaces Randall Stevenson, the former CEO of AT&T, who resigned in protest earlier this summer? Very, very close ties to the PGA Tour. He's the executive chairman of Valero Energy. Of course, Valero is a tour sponsor, so he's very, very close to the PGA Tour. His name is Joe Gorder, and I think he is going to take that spot at a very important time. We just heard Rory talk about that he probably got a little bit more than he bargained for when he joined the policy board. I think all of the independent directors are probably feeling the same thing. It's important to also look at the very last line of the memo sort of touched on what they're talking about as, as governance. And we sort of go back to the middle of the summer when the framework agreement was announced. There was a lot of player pushback. And the tour sort of embarked on this idea that they were going to take a hard look at exactly how the policy board was made up and exactly how much voice the players have. So going forward right now, you have six player directors. Patrick Cantlay was signed for one more term. So it's essentially a six to five vote. So you get an idea of exactly how important this vote is going to be when they when they decide on who they go with, whether that's the PIF or some other private equity or they continue the status quo. It sounds like, uh, you know, business tends to slow down during the holidays, as we know, and this framework agreement is not exempt from that. Be sure to check out Rex's article on GolfChannel.com. Thank you, Rex. Thanks. What do you think, man? Same place where we were a few months ago, unknown speculation, or do you sense maybe even like uh, the, the smallest incremental steps being taken? There, there's definitely steps being taken and progress being made on the private equity side okay. of this. They are now down to five potential groups. And to me, that's ultimately the fundamental question that the tour is going to face here is are they going to go with a group that is simply going to give them the greatest valuation possible to put as much money in the pockets of players as possible or are they going to go with a group who might have a better proven track record in terms of managing major sports franchises mm. or developing growth uh, at a reasonable sustainable pace that is protects the asset for the long term and those are two very different pathways that the tour could potentially take in this situation here and a lot of that will depend on the how loud those voices are in the room, and it, it was kind of funny when Rex mentioned that governance line. I mean, if Joe Ogilvie's listening, that one was for you, Joe. That was <laughs> the, the box checking that Joe can't complain that they're not paying attention yes. to governance because it was just simply a passing reference that they're aware of the, the considerations that have been raised in the past, and it's ongoing. But this was a memo of continuity. Mm. You know, Mark Flaherty was reappointed to the board, a former Goldman Sachs executive Patrick Cantley reappointed to the board Ed Hurley remains as chairman of the PGA Tour board so there, there's certainly continuity all of those people aren't necessarily aligned in terms of what direction they want to go and they all have their various issues but it's certainly a memo that suggests continuity while they're trying to figure out what comes next there are financial considerations but aren't there also you know let's say cultural considerations as well and I'm use the word culture with Jay Ogilvie talked about are, are your business interests your your future you know the way you look at the at the growth in the sport the way you look at lifestyle the way you look at things outside of the finances how are they going to be aligned with the PGA Tour and the importance that the all of the participants in particular the players are in agreement and kind of rowing in the same direction and that's really where Colin Neville comes in the ring capital uh, advisor who's been appointed as the player advisor who's got total insight on all of these negotiations to try to herd the cattle when it comes to the players because as we saw in an interview Rory McIlroy did at the weekend he said of his relationship with Patrick Cantley a fellow board member was average at best yeah. to use Rory's phrase he said we don't see the same the world in the same way we have nothing in common and I don't think that's just those two there's a lot of different very different people on that board Tiger Woods a Peter Malnati a Webb yeah. Simpson 
there, there's probably a very different set of considerations each of those guys brings to the table. How they all align around one particular party here as, as a potential investor really does remain to be seen. And then that does raise the existential question ultimately is do the, the players, do the, the, does the PGA Tour need or ultimately want the Saudi money? Because it might be cheap money in the sense that it's sort of cheaper than whatever they would get from private equity, but it comes at a high cost mm. reputationally. And it may simply get to the situation where the board and the players say, you know what, this is our preferred option. And if that means being in competition yeah. with the PIF and with Live Golf for however long Live Golf exists, they may just choose to take that risk. But it, it really does seem as though everything is on the table at this sure, point. Right. Even in peaceful times, it was hard to get world number one and world number 100 on the same page to agree at what the future of the PGA Tour should look like. And make no mistake, these are not peaceful times in the professional game. That is certainly true. And there's <laughs> going to be a lot to talk about as this show rolls on today. And we've got a pretty good lineup of guests to do that. We'll dig in on the PGA Tour stuff later with Davis Love and Billy Horschel. Sarah Sturck from Sky Sports will also join us for the European angle on that. And we have two of the top three women in the World Golf Rankings, Celine Boutier and Lilia Vu. We'll be right back. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome back to Golf Today. Let's see where things stand in the race to the CME Globe. And it's quite a shootout. At the very top, Celine Boutier has a narrow lead over the world number one, Lilia Vu. So all to play for this week in Naples, Florida. Today has been quite the year for Francis Celine Boutier. In July, she became a major champion when she won the Amundi Evian Championship in her native France, becoming just the third French woman to win a major title. And it's been a fantastic, bountiful season in 2023. She's won four events, including that first career major. Logged a career high eight top five finishes, surpassing her previous best of six one year ago, and earned more than $2.7 million, more than the last three seasons combined. And Celine joins us now from Naples. Celine, thank you so much for your time. No wins last year, four wins this year. What's been the difference? Um, I don't think my game was too different at all. I just uh, feel like I definitely took advantage of the opportunities a lot better and feeling more comfortable when you're in contention is definitely key when you want to, you know, win a tournament because it's definitely not easy out there. But um, and then once you start to do it, you get more confident in the situations uh, that you put yourself in after that. So I feel like it kind of helps to do it. And then the more you do it, the more comfortable you are in this situation. Celine, when you came to this tournament last year, you were number 14 in the world. You had a couple of LPGA wins, no majors. Now you're number three in the world this year, six wins and a major. Do you feel more weight of expectation to perform from yourself or from others? Um, it's just all come so fast that honestly I just don't feel like um, it's changed too much for me yet. I definitely feel like, you know, uh, going home definitely a little bit more expectations even when I, you know, talk to the media and everything. But I just try not to pay attention too much and just try to focus on my own game. Celine, France is a wonderful country, food, culture. You're the third French woman to win a major title and you did it on home soil. What have you heard back in France? Are, are the kids paying more attention to golf? Are more people playing golf? Uh, to be honest, I hope they are playing more golf, but I'm not sure. I haven't really had chance to spend much time in France since I won, but uh, it's definitely uh, very rewarding to be uh, the only the third you know, French person to win a major and the first one to win the Amandi Championship has been uh, quite a dream come true for me. Um, I definitely had a lot more you know, media attention and uh, people just in general paying more attention to the LPGA and to me, so it's been very re rewarding. But as far as uh, if people are picking up more clubs uh, now, I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't really had a chance to go back for that long. 
Happy belated birthday, Selena. I know you just turned 30 just a few days ago. Does reaching that milestone make you reset any of your goals? Or are you just happy to be playing the best golf of your life at any age? Um, I mean, I definitely feel like I'm on the or, like older half on the tour. So I feel like definitely reaching 30 was a, a little bit of an eye opener for me. I was, but uh, just to be able to play well, um, you know, at this stage of my life, I just feel like I'm honestly just getting started. So it's very exciting, and uh, I just hope I can keep going for a few more years because it's uh, very enjoyable, you know, when you start winning. <laughs> Celine, you're so delightful to talk to, soft-spoken. You went to Duke University, one of the great schools in the country and the world. But how would you describe your competitive fire? Because people close to you say that you have a lot of fight, a lot of internal fortitude. Um, you know, I feel like I'm definitely very competitive now, which wasn't normally uh, the, uh, usually the case when I was uh, younger. But I feel like uh, golf has definitely made me more competitive. And uh, I feel like the talent is just so good out here and it's so hard to win that you have to have that competitive edge to be able to, to win. And then uh, I feel like it's just so much fun to be able to uh, be in contention and play for the win that you just want to do it again. So I feel like I've just become more and more competitive, which is very positive. I feel like it's just drives me to become a better player and it drives me to go practice, you know, that much. So I feel like it's a, it's a pretty good thing. We saw a lot of that competitiveness a few weeks ago when you were in a playoff in Malaysia with Athaya Thitikun and it went nine holes and she had some amazing shots in that playoff. And every time she hit an amazing shot, you hit one right behind her and you finally came out on top. Where does it rank among your accomplishments this year to have won a playoff of that quality and that duration? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely uh, going to be one of the highlights uh, of my year and possibly of my career. I feel like I uh, never really had to, you know, have a playoff that intense and that long before. Uh, just being in a playoff in general is never easy to handle. It's just so much pressure and so much nerves. Uh, just to be able to handle it for that long, you know, I feel like it was a roller coaster of emotions for, you know, the whole nine holes. Uh, like I said, she's such a great player, so I knew that I had to, you know, make birdies and uh, sometimes when your back is against the wall and when she was hitting these good shots she just had no other option than to go for it and so I feel like it's uh, you know very rewarding and very good for the confidence to, you know to be able to know that you can put off these shots when you need to. Celine you've won a lot of trophies in your life what did you think of that trophy though the tiger I mean I'd put that like right in the front room where all my guests could see it what did you think of the trophy. It was, you know, a lot heavier than you would think, uh, but it was very pretty for sure. It kind of looked like a sculpture, something you definitely want to put on display. Um, but I mean, personally, it will, hard, it will be hard to beat the Avion, uh, you know, championship trophy. So just personally, but I feel like it's definitely one of the best looking trophies I've had for sure. This week's stop at the CME Tour Championship, it's always been one of the biggest first place prizes on tour, Celine. Even with what you've accomplished this year, can you put something like that out of your mind or does it still creep into your mind a little bit just how much you could earn by playing well this week? I mean, it's hard to avoid it. You know, everyone's talking about it. It's kind of like the highlight of the season. Uh, just CME is doing such a great job at putting everything together and hyping the tournament up. It's already such an honor to be able to qualify, you know, for the tournament. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a big check and I feel like it would obviously be great to win it. But I also know the best way for me to perform well is not to think about uh, that too much. So I'm just going to try to focus on putting four good rounds together and just see uh, if that's enough at the end. Well, you finished tied for 10th a year ago in Naples. How does the golf course set up for your game right now? Yeah, I think it's a very good course. It's playing a little bit softer this year, so I think uh, the greens are a bit more receptive. Um, I definitely feel like I've had some good performances here in the past, so very good for confidence. And uh, I think I'm just going to try to see how the, t the um, conditions evolve throughout the week. But it should be a very fun week, and I'm really excited to get started. Well, I know it's been a fun season. Congrats on all of your accomplishments. We appreciate your time. Merci and à bientôt. Merci beaucoup. Thank you. We've got another world beater joining us after the break. Lilia Vu won not one, but two majors this season. Add another victory to her stacked resume on Sunday. We're catching up with the UCLA Bruin.
next. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. And the UCLA Bruin, Lilia Vu, joins us now from Naples. Being number one in the world, all of the attention that goes with it, how are you handling the off the course? More eyeballs on you, more expectations on you. I think I'm just going to stick to my game plan this week and just play one shot at a time and try to be in contention by the weekend and then go from there. I mean, I say this all the time, just one shot at a time and then just being where my feet are at. When you came here a year ago, Lilia, you were 41st in the world rankings. You've moved up 40 spots. You didn't have a win at that point. You have four now and, and two majors. Are you surprised by the level of success you've had in the past year or is this what you've expected of yourself? I've definitely expected a win. Um, being here at the Tour Championship last year was actually kind of my breaking point last season. I know I just fell apart after the last day here and just because I was really upset that I didn't come out with a win and then kind of just reevaluated myself, knew that I put too much pressure on myself. And so coming into this season, I had no expectations. I just trusted that I would win eventually and then turned out to be the first event of the season. Yeah, it's been a crazy wild ride. It has, Lilia, and not just last season, but 2019, you made one cut. You know, the unfortunate circumstances around COVID, losing your grandfather during that time, your confidence was in a different place. How do you go from there to where you're standing on your own two feet today? Yeah, it was really just a huge mindset shift. I came out of college not just quite ready to kind of be an adult and know that this is a career path that I wanted. And I think I just put so much pressure on myself. I thought of golf as life or death. Every shot meant the world. And if I didn't hit a good shot, it was the end of the world. And so I think just trying to find that fun again where I just always had fun playing golf I mean for a little bit I dreaded playing golf and almost thought about quitting golf thank God I did it because I wouldn't trade it for the world but I mean those tough years happened so that I could have today you know just persevering through all of that and just being grateful and anybody would love to be in the position that we all are at on LPGA so just being grateful and having fun out there on the golf course I'm interested in how this pressure has processed differently over the course of this year, Lilia. Your first win in Thailand in February, how you felt in that final round, how was that different to how you felt Sunday when it was your fourth win of the year? Did you feel as though it's a little easier in that position? It's never quite easy. Each win had its own kind of difficulty. I know, like, going into Sunday of Honda, Thailand, um, I was pretty far back. I think I made a really good run on the last day, but I that round was just out of this world, and I knew there was nothing to lose, so I just kept going for it and just never stopped just doing what I do. And then, so, yeah, and then the fourth win, I mean, I kind of got in my own way a little bit on the back nine, and my, my caddy actually said something to me. He said, hey, you got to get the negative mindset out. You can make a putt from anywhere, so just keep being positive. And then something happened on, just somehow made a birdie on 15 and then 16, and then finished out strong. Besides his great dive uh, in Houston, what role has Cole, your caddy, played in your great play in 2023? Oh yeah, he's supported me so much. I mean, he kind of puts me in my place and picks me up when I'm feeling down. So he's been huge for me. I mean, I have the best team around me and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Even though you're number one in the world now, Lilia, obviously you take a very analytical approach to your game and where the headroom is to improve. Where do you look at the, the headroom now, even if you are the best player 
in the world, indisputably so. Where do you see room for improvement this week, next year and beyond? I think there's a lot of room for improvement. I know that's like my perfectionism just peeking out, but I think there's room for improvement. I'm excited for it. I get, I love, I fall in love with the process of getting better. So I'm not sure what needs to be improved. I know there's probably all parts of the game, but I would probably sit down with my team and kind of go over what we think needs to be done. I'm just super untechnical, so whatever my coach and my team decides, and we'll work on that. Lilia, I still remember some great shots I hit at the old course at St. Andrews, tee shot on 11 or a four iron I hit at Isleworth into 18 in Orlando. What's the favorite shot you've hit in 2023, the best shot that you keep replaying in your mind over and over again? Okay, um, Walton Heath, second hole, Sunday. I hit my... So I have a one hybrid that replaced the three wood. So I hit my one hybrid into the wind off the tee and then hit my one hybrid again onto the green. It's a par four, by the way. And then I made the putt. It was maybe 12 feet and it felt like an eagle because that hole was playing so hard. But I still remember that moment. That is awesome. From Westwood to Walton Heath, so many people are happy about the success you've had in 2023. <laughs> Thanks for the time. Best luck this week. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. Well, we're going to check back in on the DP World Tour right after this break. Sarah Sturk from Sky Sports will be joining us to talk about that other season finale happening this week, a few thousand miles to the east in Dubai. We'll be right back. And we're pleased to be joined now by our Sky Sports colleague, Sarah Sturk, who's been covering the DP World Tour all year long. Sarah, it's normally a period of reflection when a, a tour gets to its season finale. Is that where you are in Europe right now, or does it feel more like a period of speculation with all of these unknowns that are going on around the framework agreement and the general future shape of this game? I think, uh, hello to you both, first of all. I think absolutely that word speculation, look, it's, we're all waiting to see how all this unfolds. It's been such a such an intriguing, fascinating kind of couple of years in the world of golf. And look, I, I mean, we still, let's be honest, we're, we're still kind of no clearer as to, as to the future, what is going to happen. Obviously, we're looking for the, we've seen the strategic alliance with the DP World Tour, with the PJ Tour. We're now seeing the investment, this the framework agreement with the PIF and potentially other bodies as well, which are coming on board. That, that deal, that announcement, obviously, we'll hear more on that in the coming days, in the coming weeks. So I think it is a period of reflection. It's a period of speculation. I think golf, it clearly as a professional golfer, it's a great time to be at the top of the game. It's a, it's a wonderful sport, as we all know, but it has been in this massive state of flux. And I think for all of us now, all of us players, everybody involved in the game of golf, us in the media, we kind of just want some sense of, okay, it has been a bit of a tumultuous couple of years. We just kind of now want some clarity. We really want to know how professional golf looks going forward. Are we going to see everybody come together to work in unison? Are we going to see that for the betterment, for the good of the game of golf? And hopefully we can, because I think we're all, let's be honest, a little bit sick of talking and all the speculation. We now just want some clarity. What is going to happen and how does that look at the top of professional golf? Well, Sarah, even with the tumult and speculation, do you believe that the DP World Tour is in a position of strength as we prepare to turn the calendar for 2024? I do and I don't. Look, I mean, as people, you know, I, I work I work across both tours. I've worked probably more so on the PJ Tour the last couple of years, traveling and obviously based a lot at a, a London studio with Sky. I think you hear a lot of players, you hear a lot of, of, of media saying effectively that the DP World Tour has, has it in effect become a, a bit of a feeder tour. You know, we're seeing this week at the... Uh, at the DP World Tour Championship, these 10 PJ Tour cards up for grabs. It's sort of seen as a way to, you play on the DP World Tour, you achieve success, and it's a way to potentially, as we're now seeing with these cards, to earn your spot on the PJ Tour. I think it's tough to see how, how this, what, what the end game is, but I think yes and no in terms of a strength for the, P, for the DP World Tour, but I think it has become and it is now more seen as that kind of feeder tour the pj tour has continued in recent years to just get bigger and stronger and it's been inevitably really tough for the dp world tour to compete the fact that they're now kind of working in unison i think it's positive i think it's a good thing but i still want to see 
the strength of the DP World Tour in its own right. And I'm just, I have concerns for its future, given the way the Saudi investment and given the way that world golf is, is kind of moving in, in, in that direction right now. Hasn't it always kind of been the case, Sarah, even going all the way back to Tony Jacklin's era, Peter Roosterhouse, that the best players in Europe always ended up going to the United States simply because there was more money there and in some cases a, a deeper competition. I'm curious if, is there a sense around the tournament this week of this competition within the competition for those 10 cards? Because there still could be some shifting going on towards the, the bottom of those top 10 guys who are eligible for the PGA Tour status for next year. Yeah, and it's also interesting. Obviously, I know you guys have discussed this, and it's something that we, we've sort of highlighted in the studio the last sort of few weeks. You know, the top guy, I mean, Moronk right now, he earns the, that full playing status right, for 2024 on the PJ Tour. He's locked in. But the rest of those guys, I mean, they are fighting. There's obviously that re-rank after the Masters. So, yet they can earn one of those PJ Tour cards. But obviously then come the Masters, if they don't have that good start to the, to the season, then, you know, they're kind of, they're in that re-rank and they effectively could come then back and play on the DP World Tour. So, yeah, I, I think there is that kind of sense. I think it's, it's obviously a bit of a shame as well that, that McElroy, for me, is a little bit of an anticlimax that the, the race of the Dubai titles wraps up before we even get to Dubai. I think that's something that we've seen the PGA Tour and the FedEx Cup. They've tweaked that system over the years. I think it's a shame that, yeah, we've got the DP Tour Championship on the line, a wonderful field. We're going to see some fabulous golf in Dubai this week. But I do think it's a shame that McElroy's wrapped that up heading in. And, and, and yeah, one of the big storylines then becomes those 10 PGA Tour cards, which I think will be intriguing to see. You know, the name of Robert McIntyre, for example, he's got a wonderful opportunity. He's talked about how life-changing that would be for him. But as you say, look, these guys, they all start out. No matter what anyone says, the PJ Tour for the last few years now has been, it has been the gold standard. It's been the place, the top place to play your golf. So these guys all starting out on the DP World Tour, the ultimate aim is to go stateside to compete with the very best players in the world week in, week out on the PJ Tour. Well, speaking of Rory, a great European who's made it big, in the United States. He gives his season a seven. Disappointing U.S. Open, the finish, but a big win in the Ryder Cup. Where do you see him bereft of a major for a decade at the age of 34? I, I, find, it hard to, I find it hard to sit here now and think it's been that long since his last major. And you, you know, as we all have, you, you know, he's a very kind of open guy. We, we, we've got to know Rory quite well. And, and he's talked about, he, he's made no secret of the fact for me that you know, early 30s, family guy, close relationship with his parents, great sort of network of, of close friends. He's always made a point of the fact he wants to enjoy his life outside of golf. Golf isn't everything. But a lot of that, I think, is a bit of self-defense. You know, he's a very articulate guy, he's a very thoughtful guy, a very intellectual guy. He has achieved great things in this game. But the big frustration for him now, which keeps on coming year in, year out at the minute, is the fact that he hasn't added to that major tally. And I think that self-defense mechanism is almost kind of shifting the pressure off him a little bit. I think it will happen as we all do. We all hope it will within the next sort of 18 months, two years for sure that, that he, that he gets back into that major winner circle because for all his brilliance and all his consistency, that's what he wants. That's, you know, Tiger Woods at the end of his career, you measure yourself on the, the major championships you've won. Obviously he's a major champion already, a multiple major champion, but to have that, to have that gap where he's not, slipped inside he's not walked inside that major winning circle now for some time it has caused him massive frustration and it caused us watching him frustration because he's such a wonderful athlete he's such a joy to watch week in week out on the golf course and uh, it's only a matter of time I think that that we'll see him back winning and, and hopefully you know as we always do that seems a long wait doesn't it to Augusta National the first major of the year but once again all that expectation all that pressure search for the career grand slam as he tees it up at Augusta the year's first major but hopefully you know 2024 uh, we all wish will be big for him in terms of major championship performances let's skip ahead to 2025 for a moment Sarah another guy enjoying his life right now is Luke Donald fresh off the Ryder Cup captaincy in Europe do you see him keeping the job being the first captain to repeat since Bernard Gallagher almost 30 years ago, or is there any other viable candidate for the job right now? I, like many, I think would love to see Luke um, as the captain in 2025. Um, 
I think it's obviously it's his decision. You look at, you know, you look at what has happened with Liv and the, the defectors to Liv and obviously how some of the key names in the sort of the next in line, the Poulters, the Garcias, the Westwoods, um, you know, I, I think the, the Liv defectors, it's more, it wasn't more from a playing capacity. It was more in terms of that captaincy. Um, I think the consistency to have Luke in that hot seat again, given how well he, he managed and, and controlled and, communicated with his troops was just phenomenal to watch in Rome and I'd love to see him have the job again I, I think he's got a wonderful opportunity I think also so I think one of the things that struck me with Luke as well is that he's always been quite a sort of reserved a wonderful competitor wonderful golfer yes but always quite an almost reserved character and I think it was amazing to see him kind of come to the fore and deliver and almost I mean his speech you know the the at the opening ceremony I thought was magnificent and I know he's doing a little bit of that sort of motivation, like keynote speaking now in, in terms of at the latter stage of his career. And I think I think he's really kind of grown into that role. And I think it might have surprised a few people sort of how, because there's a lot that comes into captaincy, obviously. It's not just about you're in charge of your, your, your 12 men that week. It's the organizational stuff. But it's also that leadership, that mentoring capacity as well. And I think Luke really excelled in that department. And I think he's obviously... Many people would love to see him in that position again in Beth Page 2025, and I would be—I'd be surprised. I'm a little bit shocked if he wasn't the man to lead Europe again. Mm, 2025 can't get here soon enough. It's November. No shortage of storylines in this great game. Sarah, thanks so much for the time. Thank you, guys. Well, I'm not sure Davis Love enjoyed the Ryder Cup as much as Victor Hovland did, but there's hardly a part of this game that Love doesn't touch. He's a player, tournament host, course designer, Ryder Cup winner, boardroom veteran. There's a lot to talk about in this game, and we can't think of anyone better for that conversation. DL3 is coming up later when we come back. Davis Love III has more experience than just about anyone these days as a player, around the Ryder Cup and in PGA Tour politics. We're going to hit all three topics as the Hall of Famer joins us from his home tournament at the RSM Classic. And Billy Horschel is back in action for the first time since August. What's he been doing? And we're going to find out what he's been up to as Golf Today rolls on. Today. Coming up in just a few minutes at the bottom of the hour, you can catch live second day coverage of the Southwest Airlines Showcase at Cedar Creek. Some of the game's top amateur minority golfers compete against each other. Welcome back into Golf Today. I'm Eamon Lynch alongside Damon Hack. Damon, this, this is a week that's somewhat sobering for me in the memory bank. Four years ago, the RSM Classic, Gary Williams, our mutual friend, mm asked me to play the Pro-Am with him in a moment of madness. I said yes. And I mentioned it to Brandel Chambly that evening, and his response was, you'll kill someone. <laughs> wow. So I Thanks called the Gary the next day and, and withdrew. Gary's never quite forgiven me for it, but I think of that every year we roll around to the RSM Classic because where you hit the ball, where I do, yes. the seaside course is particularly unforgiving. I've actually played in that Pro-Am at the RSM. I had to tee off with Davis Love the third behind me on the tee, he was in the group behind me. I was playing with Brendan Todd, and thankfully I got the ball airborne, pushed it way to the right. I was not playing very well throughout that entire program. I think I got to like 16. There's some water snaking its way from, from the tee box. I hit this pop-up in the air, splash right in the water, and I just, just head down, defeated. I had been holding it together with Band-Aids for four hours, and I just I had nothing left to give. Well, isn't that the old line about pros when it comes to pro-ams? They won't be surprised when you play <laughs> badly and they don't care if you play well. No question about it. Well, this is it. This is one event left in the FedEx Cup fall. The PGA Tour heads to St. Simons Island, Georgia. Gorgeous spot in the country. The RSM Classic. You can catch live first-round coverage. That's Thursday, noon Eastern time, right here on Golf Channel. And, yes, teaming it up this week, tournament host and former Ryder Cup captain a couple of times. Davis Love III, most recently a vice captain for Zach Johnson and the U.S. team in this year's Ryder Cup in Rome. And you want to talk about a robust bio. World Golf Hall of Fame member, 21 PGA Tour victories, 179 top tens and nearly 800 starts. Won that 97 PGA under the rainbow at Wingfoot 
one of the 92 players, the 03 players, twice a Ryder Cup captain, as mentioned. And I believe we have him now, the tournament host, Davis Love III from St. Simons. It's great to see you, Davis. Let's go back to 2010, the vision of this event. How much has it matched reality of the RSM Classic? Well, I think the, the reality of bringing our friends here to play a golf tournament, the like the the heritage or, or like um, over there, the, the old Callaway Gardens event, you know, great hospitality and a great town for the tour players and, and the circus of the PGA Tour to come to. Um, that met our expectations. But as far as dealing with our sponsor, RSM, creating a partnership, raising tons of money for charity, it's, it's certainly exceeded our expectations in, in that regard. Just on that point, Davis, what does the charitable picture look like in the area you live in without this event. What does this mean to the community that you're in? Well, they tell us from the Convention Visitors Board that it's eight to $10 million of economic impact of just business. So it's like having uh, Georgia, Florida again, or having 4th of July again. It's it's a big week for, for our little town. And then the, the charity dollars are just incredible. You know, we give, uh, you know, over a million dollars locally, but through RSM and our Birdies for Love program, we give six, seven million dollars a year. And um, I remember Tim Fincham telling me our first year, he said, oh, you're probably going to lose money the first year and maybe the second year you can get some momentum. We made 150,000 the first year and we're going to go over 40 million dollars this year. So uh, it's incredible the impact it's had not only on our community, but all around all the, the communities and offices that RSM touches around the world. It truly has helped a lot of people, Davis. Speaking of Georgia, Florida, we had Ryan Lavner on yesterday, your buddy and mine. He said the PGA Tour doesn't do scarcity well, that it's hard to have PGA Tour events in the midst of college football and the NFL, and that four or five events would be better in the FedEx fall versus seven. What say you? Well, I always felt like, you know, I was a, uh, on the board of the PGA Tour a lot, and they talked about going up against football or going up against this. I think our golf fans watch golf, no matter what, um, especially your channel. They're they're there. They're watching anything that you put on that's, that's competition. They watch it. So I think our true fans stick with us no matter what. Certainly, they watch more, uh, you know, at the Players' Championship on Sunday than they do during the fall. But um, we need playing opportunities for young guys. But what people have to remember is every one of these tournaments in the fall raises a lot of money for charity. They weren't formed to just entertain the fans. They were formed to the Dallas Salesmanship Club and the Phoenix Thunderbirds and all these entities. The tournaments were built to raise money for charity. So we don't, whatever happens, whatever the fall is in the future, whatever happens with the PGA Tour schedule, the Davis Love Foundation wants to raise money for charity and we want all these guys to come play in our town we have a you know 80 group pro-am um function tomorrow that raises a ton of money for charity we want that to keep going and i think with all the things going on in the business of the pga tour that's the underlying factor is rsm and our sponsors don't want to stop giving money to charity it's very easy davis to separate that kind of local angle and benefit of a tournament from all of this global conversation about what the future of the game looks like just in terms of how this fall series has changed this year do you feel in any way your event has been diminished by being cut off from the main schedule or is it actually enhanced because there's so much more at stake this week for individual guys and their playing status than there has been in years past well, i guess this is our third version of what we are at the rsm classic in the fall we were not a uh, FedEx event when we started. We were not a, a master's invitation. We were not, didn't have all those things. Then we became part of the FedEx season and that was great. Uh, and then now this is our first year. We don't know what it's going to be like, but guys are playing to keep their card. Guys are playing to get in, in the, the next 10. There's a lot of reasons that there's a lot of players here. I just saw a list of guys that have played every tournament in the fall. Um, and my challenge as a, as a former board member always was we need more playing opportunities for the young guys. So look at how many young guys we have, um, including some amateurs that are getting their first start in a PGA Tour event. So it's foundational for some guys. It's um, <laughs> keeping a job for some guys. And it's trying to get in those 
um, signature events next year for about 10 or 15 guys. So it's exciting, but we'll have to see where it goes. And, you know, the PGA tour always comes up with something exciting and new and different. And uh, hopefully we don't have a whole lot more changes here in the schedule, but we like being in this date the week before Thanksgiving, kind of at the end of the year. You've been on the board. You've been player director. How much more involved were you in tour governance height of power compared to Rory McIlroy or Patrick Cantlay modern day? Well, um, I'm in contact with a lot of those guys lately. Um, I've been, um, you know, brought in just really a voice of uh, experience. You know, I've seen probably more board meetings than anybody um, as a player director. I've been actually worked with all of our commissioners that have been commissioners of the PGA Tour, started back with Dean Beeman um, before Tim Fincham was named commissioner. So, it's been um, it's been a long career, and so if I can chip in here or there and and give some advice, um, some leadership, I'm happy to do it. You know, obviously Jay Monahan is is a friend of mine first, and then I've known him since he started in the in, out on the PGA tour. So I'm helping out where I can, giving advice. We got a bunch of smart people doing a great job right now, and I think uh, the momentum is certainly going in the right direction. Davis, we had one of your peers, Joe Ogilvy, on the show recently, and Joe made the argument that he didn't think running the tours business was really all that difficult. Do you agree with him? Well, um, I agree. I've, I've talked to Joe a little bit, and, um, you know, some very smart people say, your business is not in trouble. You don't really need a whole lot of money, and you don't really need to do anything different in your tournament operations. Now, are there incredible opportunities that can be taken advantage of? Yes but we're not a failing business that needs to be bailed out. So yeah, Joe's right. It's, it's not that hard. The tournament side of it, you know, Jay and his staff have done an incredible job. Look what they did going through COVID. Um, look where we are. We continue to grow every year and get better and better. Now, the challenge is, um, is there some new opportunity out there? Can we, can we assemble the world of golf tours and make the world better? Yes, I think we can. So I think we're heading in the right direction. But, um, you know, a lot of smart people like Joe are weighing in, and it's great to have everybody's opinion. Another area you've been asked to weigh in with your experience in the past was the Ryder Cup, particularly in the aftermath of the, of the task force that was created back in 2014. Uh, where's the line between the value of experience that you bring, that Jim Furyk brings, that Steve Stricker is bringing, and then the, the need for fresh blood, the, you know, the argument that says it's time for you guys to exit stage left, and who is that next generation? Well, um, I hope you tell Jim Furyk that, that some of the guys need to go and, <laughs> and move on to the next generation because I've had more than my fair share of, of fun helping out. But, you know, it's, it's up to the captain. Um, but, you know, we brought in Zach Johnson a while back. And, look, Zach Johnson was a great Ryder Cup captain. We, we brought in Webb Simpson at the President's Cup last year. He was incredible. Stuart Sink was an all-star this year. Um, we are bringing him in. We're talking about other guys that can be the future. But when the team comes to you and go, Freddie's coming back next year, right? <laughs> um, he, everybody wants Fred Couples. You know, everybody loves to hang around Zach Johnson, they, they respect Steve Stricker and they will run through a wall for him. So the, the team kind of dictates that. It's not really 100% coming from, from our little leadership group. And then obviously the PGA of America and the PGA Tour know who they want next. But yes, I totally agree. I told Tiger that back in 2019 and he's the only one that's taken me up on it recently. Like I need to, uh, I need to hand it off to the, to the next generation. Well, Davis, there was a time that Phil Mickelson was earmarked to be the captain in 2025. Beth Page, he's an honorary New Yorker, the people's champ. As Ving Rhames said in Pulp Fiction, what now? Who gets that job? I don't know. That's a, that's a great question. I, I, um, I keep throwing Tiger under the bus, um, <laughs> so I'll do it again. You know, obviously, Tiger's at the top of the list to be a, a Ryder Cup captain down the road. Um, I... I think we, we've got a bunch of guys that, that could step in and do it. I mean, obviously, watching Webb and Stuart Sink, they're, they're leaders, and the players respect them. Um, it's it's just like Joe Ogilvy said. It's pretty easy to pick somebody that the players like and, and will play for. Um, it's just a matter of the order of succession. I think that's uh, what we're working on right now. Davis, if you need a couple of knuckleheads to round out the Pro-Am next year, here are the two guys that will do it. Have a great week at St. Simons. All right, thanks a lot. World Golf Hall of Fame member, tournament host, Davis Love III. And when golf today rolls on, we're joined by PGA Tour winner 
and FedEx Cup champ Billy Horschel. He's about to tee it up in the last event in the FedEx Cup fall. Back on golf today's flashback to 2022 Memorial. Billy Horschel won at Jack's place by four with Aaron Wines. Man, that is a difficult golf course, Mirfield Village. So tough. The win marked his third worldwide in 15 months at the time, moved him to just outside the top 10 in the world. How about a season in review for 2023? Made 13 cuts in 22 starts. Best finished at fourth at the Wyndham. Advanced beyond group play. Austin at the match play, currently 13th in proximity on approaches from 50 to 125. Fantastic ball striker and great to have Billy Horschel joining us now from the RSM Classic. Coming off four straight starts on the DP World Tour, what do you gain from that experience overseas? Uh, well, thanks for having me on, guys. But uh, I love going over there. I love my experience. I love the the feel I have when I go over there. I love the simplicity uh, of life over there in the UK and Europe. Um, I love, you know, I love the DP World Tour. I love the way the guys go about their business, but they still enjoy, enjoy life, enjoy being around each other. Um, and so, you know, I went over there to, well, I was always going to go over there, but, you know, not having a great year on the PJ Tour, I needed to go over there and play well and build some momentum for the rest of 23 and, and build it going into to 24. Billy, this game was roughing you up a little bit earlier in the year, and we saw that emotional interview you did at the memorial but things have turned around you've had five top 20 finishes in your last six starts what changed along the way for you yeah i think there's a you know a couple things i think the big thing was we did a little um 3d testing with gears gears 3d with michael neff uh on tuesday at uh the us open um you know from that data everything we we got from it um, swing wise. We did everything we, we could. Swing was in a great spot. Everything that Michael looks at to, for little checkpoints uh, was in, you know, the parameters that he likes to see. And the thing that we came away was that my lie angles were about two to three degrees too upright. Um, you know, it, it wasn't Tyler's fault. It wasn't my fault. It may, it was probably, it was more my fault not checking it, but, you know, by switching club companies over the last, you know, three or so years, uh, you know, some of the numbers probably got mixed up and, and that made, um, you know, uh, an issue where I couldn't cut the ball, the heel was digging in a little too much. And, and so from flying out the line angles, then it was more or less getting the mental game back in where I needed to be. I had so many bad shots over six months that I hadn't seen in my entire career. Um, I sort of had to get some of that scar tissue out and replace it with um, more quality golf shots. And, I, and I've done that over the last uh, three or four months. What is that journey like? I mean, I've talked to Paul Casey about it through the years that a, a professional golfer fears nothing more than, than a loss of control. How do you get back to the confidence side of the street? Well, I think when you have the data and everything that Todd Anderson and I was doing, um, you know, once we have the – a confirmation that what we were doing was correct um, and you know it was one little small thing in the line angles then you can start believing you know it just gives you the belief that everything that Todd and I was doing was correct and then I can take that into my practice and and um, you know gain confidence from what I'm doing in practice and and slowly build that into tournament you know as much as I would like that to happen right away um, it was going to take a little bit of time and so I just slowly built on you know hitting quality shots uh, um, as many quality shots as I could doing around and, and build that confidence back that when there was a, a shot that required a little bit more precision, um, I could execute as I have major done majority of my career. Billy, you've been a pretty vocal advocate for the tour over the last few years, and there's a lot of speculation now about what the future looks like. When it, when it comes to this private equity component to the future of the tour, what's more important in your mind? Is it a group that will give the highest valuation possible to the tour, therefore put more money in terms of equity in players' pockets? Or is it a group that's got a proven track record in managing growth in the assets over a longer time? I, I think it's the latter. I think it's being with a group that uh, has had success for many decades, who've, who's done it not only in the business world, but done it, done it in the sports world. Um, we're fortunate enough that the PJ Tour is an amazing product. There's a lot of people that want to be partnered with the PJ Tour. We have unbelievable sponsors and partners for many decades on the PJ Tour, and they believe in in us as players. They believe in what we bring to the game. They believe in what we bring to um, to their companies and, and the way we represent ourselves. So um, we want to be partnered with someone who's going to help grow the PJ Tour. 
yes, it's always nice to get the biggest dollar and the most money. But at the end of the day, if, if they don't know what they're doing, then it doesn't really matter, um, you know, how much money they have. So uh, I think for me, I think being partnered with someone who's done it and, and been successful for many decades. And, and I think that's the best option um, that the two could choose from. So much of what's happening these days does seem to be based on the idea of valuations and particularly how players value themselves. Are you underpaid in your mind? <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a, a, a great question. Am I underpaid? Um, no, I don't think so. I think my valuation that I get from my sponsors and my partners is, is the correct valuation at this point in time in my career. Um, I think as I would maybe do more or move myself back up into the world rankings and in the top 10, I think that valuation increases. Um, but I'm fortunate enough to be partnered with um, unbelievable co companies for, for many years now. They, they believe in me. They believe in what I bring to their clients and their customers, and they've seen it on a regular basis, on a yearly basis, and the way I, you know, I conduct myself on and off the golf course and with their, as I said, their customers and clients. So, um, you know, that's a tough question to ask uh, a player if he, especially in a in a public setting like this, am I undervalued? But I think my valuation, as I sit here right now, I'm very pleased that, you know, what my value is and and the companies that support me and, and I support them as well. Billy, real quick, the conversation around the Ryder Cup, some say the American team, they used to not be close enough. Now some people say the players are too close, that it's a closed shop, that some players like a Keegan Bradley would have to qualify outright. Do you think it's too much of a buddy system with the Ryder Cup, that it is a bit of a closed shop? No, I don't I don't see it that way. I mean, listen, there's there's uh, a lot of guys on that Ryder Cup team. I was part of the President's Cup team in 22 that has the majority of the Ryder Cup players this year. Um, listen, they're really good friends. They've been good friends for a long time. Mm, I don't think it's a closed shop. In the case of Keegan, uh, or maybe even Cam Young, who was higher up in the Ryder Cup points list, if you sort of look at what they did towards the end of the career, they, I mean, not in the career, end of the season, you know, consistent the, the consistent play they had just wasn't there. Um, you know, Keegan won at Travelers, and I think after that, you know, he didn't really, um, you know, he played well, but it wasn't like he was finishing top five, top ten. I think he had a really good week at Tour Championship. You know, Cameron Young played well at the Open Championship. But, you know, they didn't help themselves, I would say, uh, if I was a captain, um, to really solidify their team, solidify their place on the team. And so you had four or five guys that, uh, you know, Zach had to choose from. And I think they went with, based off the stats and the data and pairing players up um, with certain players and how that could possibly benefit the team. Um, I think that's what they went with. And, and like I said, I was part of the President's Cup team last year. Um, I, you know, I got my first look at how things work with the stats guys and, and the numbers and, and the way they pair players up and, you know, the simulations they go through. So um, I think they did a really good job. Listen, we can always second guess and be, a, you know, um, you know, a, a armchair quarterback or, or whatever that is. But, um, you know, they did what they did. They just didn't play well enough at the end of the day. All right, Billy. Welcome back to the States. Have a great week. Thanks, boys. There he is, past FedEx Cup champ. Have a great Tuesday, everybody. We will see you tomorrow.